Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hosea chapter 9. I would like to just skip this chapter, to be honest, and move right on to the next chapter in which there's a a little more hope coming uh, from the God of heaven, but that's not the task this evening. And so I just tell you up front, I, I struggled even putting this together. It is that dark, and it is that almost discouraging, but I hope to not leave you that way at the end of this sermon. Hosea chapter 9, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. It's 17 verses. Again, this is the word of the living God. Let's give attention to it as we consider it in an application to us even as a church today. Hosea 9, beginning with verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like a mourner's bread to them, all who eat of it shall be defiled." For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a follower's snare is is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them Till none is left, woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers. Among the nations. Amen. This, the very word 
of the living God, a sobering word indeed, and the title of the sermon is just that, a sobering judgment that has fallen, is falling upon the visible church of old here in this ninth chapter. It was Leonardo da Vinci who said, he who does not punish evil commands it to be done. He who does not punish evil commands it to be done. So far throughout this series, we have seen the kindness of God, and indeed it is a kindness in warning His people about their abominable practices. Time and again, He tells them about their behavior, and yet they refuse to listen. Some in the church are like the people of Hosea's day. Maybe some here. Some are like this. They are warned and warned and warned. Time and again, they dismiss it. The question, of course, for you this evening and for me as well, is do we hear the sober warnings of a righteous, holy God? If He is God, He must punish evil. He must. For him to not do so would be in direct violation of his nature, of his person, of his existence as the holy God of Israel. Do you hear him when he speaks and do you amend your ways as the Holy Spirit presents various items uh, to you? The context of this chapter is, well, quite obvious, isn't it? Maybe you felt the weight of it as I was reading it. I tried to read it interpretively in a way that carries with it the weight of the pending doom that is going to come, going to fall on the northern tribes of Israel. This doom can be avoided. Mere repentance, simple repentance, a changing of ways, would avoid the disaster that is about to fall upon the people. I wonder what it must have been like for Hosea to write these words as he contemplates and looks across the the, the ten tribes of Israel, uh, those that he grew up with, people he knew intimately, people he has had dinner with and has enjoyed meals together. And all of this he too will suffer at the hand of a God who is angry with the way his people have behaved. So this evening I want to show you the sobering warning followed by the sobering judgment of God on his covenant people. There's no easy way to put this. This is the chapter. I want to show you the warning. It's there again, a gracious act of God to once again say what he's been saying for nine chapters. Well, eight, now nine. I want to show you the sobering warning followed by the sobering judgment of God on his covenant people. Two points as we consider this ninth chapter. First, the sobering warning. We'll see this in verses seven and eight of the of chapter 9, and then a sobering judgment, which covers the balance of the chapter. A sobering warning, followed by a sobering judgment, as given to us by the prophecy of 
Hosea. First, a sobering warning. We read in verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. Maybe something you don't catch as you look at these two verses, but as you read them carefully, you note that the, the, the prophet, the writer here, is writing as though it already happened. It is conveying the certainty of judgment that will fall upon the people because of their lack of repentance. We know this because of the way the verbs are structured here in these two verses. They are in what we know as the perfect tense. It is a certain event. It is without question going to happen. There's nothing that can stop it now. The people of God are sitting on the edge of doom. They have not listened. They have not heard. This sobering warning has been given time and time again, not just through the pen of Hosea, but through the other prophets of God that he has sent to them repeatedly, pleading with them as a father would plead with a wayward child that they might turn away from these things and be saved, be rescued. But they have not listened. They have not heeded the very word of God. How many Lord's Days does this happen in churches across our country? How many times does this happen in the lives of the people as they come in as the visible church, as you are the visible church, as I look across this room and I see faces, I see people, I see you, I know your life, I know what's going on, more or less. But there's something I can never know. I don't know your heart. I can suspect, I can guess, educated, but I can't know your heart. The people of God in chapter 8, we noticed that they were in serious spiritual declension. They were going through the motions. They were checking the boxes, but their hearts were not changed. So much so that not only... Do they not heed the sound of the prophet's voice? They don't heed the, the preaching of the word of God to them, just like in Jeremiah's day at that temple sermon of Jeremiah 7, they didn't listen to him either. That's the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Not only did they fail to hear the sound of the prophet's voice they failed to respond to it. There was a silence of the people. The silence in that they did not heed, they did not listen, they did not do what the prophets continually pleaded with them to do, nay, what God called them to do. Instead of repentance, there's persecution. Now Jesus himself tells us about this very thing and Undoubtedly, thinking about the prophecy of Hosea, the other prophecies of Jeremiah, where after he preached that temple sermon, later in the book of Jeremiah, you read about the response of the people, and they all fell down in revival, repentance, no, 
they threatened to kill him because of what he said. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 5. There at the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. More to the point, of course, is that they did the same to the prophet of God. How many times did Jesus labor among the people, looking over Jerusalem as as people without a shepherd, sheep lost, straying around, and he wept over them? How often did he preach the truth of the gospel and the kingdom of God and people would not hear him, people would not listen to him? Think of Judas who walked with the Savior for three and a half years and heard everything that Jesus said as the prophet of God, the final prophet of God, and did not repent with his hard heart. Oh, he did everything right. He was there, present. He came to church. He went into the synagogues. But he did not respond to the preaching of the word. And so they persecuted the prophets. And so they persecuted the prophet. And that is what they are doing here in Hosea's day. They will not listen to him. The prophet has a unique role in the Old Testament, indeed into the New. And we have at least an indication of that in chapter 9 of Hosea, where we read in verse 8, the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. What is it, this station of the prophet's labor, what is it to be a watchman? When I was much younger and my father was in Bible school, one of the jobs that my dad, I don't know how he did it, with went to school full-time in Bible school, worked full-time all night long. I don't know how he did it, but he did. And he worked as a watchman, a night watchman. And maybe you know what they do. They, they have this little box, this circular device, and they carry it with them around the building, this factory. And there were these keys hanging on walls, and they would walk up to the key, and they would put it in the box, and they would turn it to indicate the time stamp of when they were there. But what were they really doing? Why were they being asked to do that in the first place? Accountability, sure. But the company wanted to ensure that the night watchman was actually watching what was going on in the building. I wished to go with my father to this. I knew that building intimately. But the job of the night watchman was to be alert, to watch for those who might bring damage against the company, against the building, against the possessions of that company. The prophets did the same. What were they watching for? They were watching for those things that might harm the people of God, that might bring damage and destruction to the people of God. And they would warn them through their their numerous labors of preaching and, and speaking, thus saith the Lord, to them. And all the time they're doing it, they are being ignored. They are not listening. The people refuse the very labor 
of the watchman. Jeremiah, if you go back a few pages, well, maybe more than a few, but Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 1, again, this, this whole idea comes forward as to one of the functions of a prophet in the Old Testament was to watch over the people that they might not be harmed and to warn them when it does approach. And in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 1, we read a warning coming from the voice of the prophet. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal on Beth Hakaram. For disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. It's a warning to the people. Jesus offered the same warning in Matthew 24. As a watchman, as a prophet, he was watching and he told the people, pray that it's not winter. Pray that these things don't happen. This judgment of God that's going to fall. Pray it doesn't happen when you're with child. Flee to the mountains. Because what is coming is cataclysmic. And so the prophet does this very function. You can go forward to Ezekiel chapter 3. Again, Ezekiel, another one of the writing prophets. He also spoke, but he also wrote. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17. Well, starting in verse 16. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And then in chapter 33 of the same book, Ezekiel 33 and verses 1 through 7, we have a more fuller explanation of this function that Hosea picks up on. Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 7, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head." Oh, but what about the other side of this issue? Well, verse 5. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. What is the point? The point is that one of the functions of a prophet is to be a watchman for the house of the Lord, to warn the people of God. It's what happens every Lord's Day, at least anywhere faithfully the word of God is being preached. It's what's happening. A warning is going out. Judgment is coming. Blow the trumpet. Be alert. Be aware. Mind your life for God, who is holy, sees and will deal with it. All of this is ignored. Hosea is absolved, as I'm going to show you in a minute. Hosea is absolved from the blood of the people. He has faithfully warned them time and again. 
time and again, they will not listen. Things could not be worse. The walls are about to be overrun. The people are about to be taken into captivity. They are about to return to a place that makes it just all the more sobering to even consider. We know, of course, through the historical record that the ten tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. were taken by the Assyrian army. They were brought into exile there where they languished for a significant amount of time. But this is not precisely how Hosea, the Lord himself, presents this sobering judgment, is it? What makes it so sobering? Well, it's because of the theme itself. Notice in, uh, in, verses, in chapter 8 and verse 13, the theme itself begins to present it, be presented. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. And note this, and they shall return. He doesn't say Assyria. He says Egypt. There could be no worse threat for the people of God than to return to the place of bondage in which God freed them, that place in which they languished for 430 years under the cruelty of a pagan nation. Now, it's figurative, of course, because we know it is really the Assyrians who do it. But it has got to be, it must have been, in the ears at least of the prophet, the worst kind of news one could ever hear. It is, in fact, a reversal of the exodus. It is a return to bondage and slavery, paganism. All of it that it represented, they will now be sent back because of their rejection the voice of the prophets, really the rejection of the voice of the Lord. See in verse 3 of chapter 9, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return, there it is again, to Egypt. And then in verse 6, once again, that word comes again. For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis, the city in Egypt, shall bury them. This is about as bad as it gets. Aside from just simply wiping them off the face of the earth, this is the worst it can get. The situation is terrible. It's an exodus in reverse. Now, what are some characteristics of this reversal? The ninth chapter gives it to us. And I, again, I tell you, and I say this just to tell you now, these are, well, they're not pleasant things. They're sobering. But they're designed, as the prophet gave them, they're designed for us today that we might heed these things and not fall into the same things that these people did. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that one of the reasons why we have these, sto these stories, all true, all, uh, what, for, as an example to us, what, that we might learn from the mistakes that they made. And we might not be like them. And so what are some of the characteristics of this reversal well in verses one through three there is a clear progression first jehovah tells them to not rejoice no rejoicing 
The situation is abysmal. What are you rejoicing for? This is a train wreck of epic proportion. No rejoicing. It's even in the form of a command. Joy has been stripped away from God's people. Second, the reason for this command is given. Maybe it doesn't surprise you and it really shouldn't surprise you because it is the chief sin of the people of Israel. But frankly, it's the chief sin of the people of God today. And it's idolatry. It says it right there. You've played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. They're finding their hope and their satisfaction in a God who cannot save and a God who cannot hear and a God who cannot heal and a God who cannot see. They have turned their hearts, their minds. All of it has gone away to a stick or a pole or a calf to something that can never save them. They have found in, in, in this, this endeavor the, the, a giving away of, the, of all that they are to the point where they even become that which they worship. We'll see that in a minute. No rejoicing. Things are abysmal. You are idolaters. You worship things that are not God. How often do we do this in the church? That quote that's easy to remember, I suspect, and it's not just because it was Calvin. We are all idol factories. If we're not careful, Satan will use even the best things that God gives to us to distract us from him. We must be careful. We must heed the warning. It is the chief sin of Israel. It's really the chief sin of the church. Anything that we put ahead of our our affections, anything that, that causes our affections to be turned away from the true God of heaven and earth, to stuff, to people, to pastors, to elders, to deacons, to children, any of it, can be turned into an idol very quickly. We must place our trust and hope in the God who saves. Third, there's this reference to the threshing floor. It's interesting, but it's really the place of provision. Now, to adequately convey this, and and I'm not going to do it really well, but hopefully well enough that you get the idea. It's a place in which the, the grain, the wheat would be separated and that which they can then use to make bread, food. But they have found their food in a prostitute's wages. Not in the wages and the blessing that comes from the God of heaven. They have been so turned away from him that they find their satisfaction in everything else, even their daily bread. This place of provision will no longer yield fruit for the people. The God who made heaven and earth can certainly stop that by simply speaking. And he does. And fourth, in horror of horrors, they will be forced to eat the unclean food in Assyria. Now, for a Jew, this is horrible news. Unclean food? Never let it be said 
that a Jew had to eat that which was declared unclean by God. And he is going to make them do it to show them, to teach them that this is what they've been doing in their idolatrous life and their hearts not near the God of heaven. Well, this brings results. These things are horrible. And as such, there's results that come and flow out of this initial, uh, these initial verses. Verses 4 through 6, there is, a, there is, as I've categorized it anyway, rejected worship. Rejected. Nope, you're not worshiping me. I'm not accepting it. Imagine what it would be like if we were to come in this building on the Lord's Day and, 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 and hear, you're not going to hear, but hear the God of heaven say, I'm not really interested in what you sing. I, I'm, I'm really not interested in what you pray either. I, I'm not interested in your best intentions. I'm not listening anymore. I've had enough. I will no longer identify with your hypocrisy. Worship is rejected. It's pictured for us, I think, in four ways. First, notice the sacrifices offered will be ignored. Verse 4, and their sacrifices shall not please him. Isn't it the, the God of heaven who instituted the sacrificial system? Isn't he the one who commanded the people to do it? Yes. But it was a means to an end. It wasn't an end itself. What is it he really wants out of this as we humble ourselves and worship before the Lord each Lord's day? What does he want? He wants a heart of obedience. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. You are offering me bulls and goats with nothing behind it. It is simply ritual. It is simply hypocrisy. And I will tolerate it no longer in the lives of my people. I'm done. That's precisely what's going on. God is resisting them. They're drawing comfort from it. And he says, don't rejoice. There's no comfort here. Second, the food they eat will no longer bless them spiritually, but only physically. The food that was holy is now merely necessary. Now it's quick to, and, and I noted this as I was writing that point out. It is important to see that even this act, as angry as God is at the sin of his people, is still an act of grace. He could have left them to starve. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. We, we know what that means. Give us what we need in this life to continue through our day. God could not do that. And we would perish. He still gives to them the food they need to sustain their bodies. Notice at the end of verse 4, for their bread shall be for their hunger only, but it shall not come to the house of the Lord. It will not be used in any way in an act of worship, thus strengthening the idea that God is rejecting their public worship. Third, worse, the festivals 
Okay, so we had the sacrificial system. God is not interested. He's not listening to that. He's not interested in what they're doing. And now, now, uh, the festivals that God has instituted for his people to remind them of the redemption that is found only in the Messiah to come, to remind them of his favor for them. And there's a host of these different festivals. You find this in the book of Leviticus. But these festivals will no longer profit them. They will be removed. Why? Because they are in Assyria. They're away from the place in which these are performed. They are no longer near Jerusalem. They're no longer able to get to Jerusalem. The festivals that were designed by God to keep them on course, to persevere them, is now of no effect. I mean, it's bad. Simply stated, all of the means that God gives to his church as a means of grace have been removed from them. It is true, of course, that as we worship the God of heaven each Lord's Day, we enjoy those means. We have the word of God in our own language. We, we have the preaching of his word. We, we have the hymns of the faith and the psalms that we sing. And we have the sacraments that we enjoy greatly. Imagine if God took them all away. You're not going to use it, so you lose it. You don't understand its true intention, so I will no longer bless it. This is the state the people are in. It could not be worse than what they are facing. And fourth, they will be captured in the paganism of the land. Verse 6, for behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis will bury them. And indeed, many of God's people from the ten tribes of the northern kingdom died in exile. They died there far away from the comfortable presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They died because of their resistance and their rebellion and their disobedience to the true God of heaven. They will be captured in the paganism of the land. God turns them over to their lusts, their idolatry. God has and will turn his visible church, and I want you to underscore that, the visible church, I I don't know who's in the invisible church. I can't know that. I can see the visible church, though. That's why it's visible. And he has, in days gone by, turned the visible church over to what they want. You want to be that way? Then fine, be that way. I'm going to give it to you. This is what you want. This is what you get. How many denominations, how many Presbyterian denominations have sunk into absolute apostasy because of the rejection of the God of heaven and the, authentic, and the, the inerrancy and infallibility of his word? The Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church in the United States, the PCUSA, is functionally apostate today. Why? They've abandoned their first love They have not held on tightly to the faith once delivered to the saints. God finally gave them over to what they want. And they now live it. They're doing it. 
moving along happily and merrily as they may be, but there can be no rejoicing in that demise. God gives them over. The people in Hosea's day, much like the people in today's church, the visible church, if they refuse to seek first his kingdom and righteousness, he will not tolerate it. He will not tolerate a half-hearted serving. I think it was last week I read from Revelation and talked about this whole idea of being a lukewarm Christian. Well, you know what? It's better to be cold. Just say it. If you don't want to serve the Lord, just say so. Say it out loud and be done with it. You're better off than if you fake it. No, he would rather you be hot, fervent for him, seeking his kingdom, but this lukewarm thing he's got no time for. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. It's impossible to do. This is what the people are doing. And he's had enough of it. He's not going to tolerate it. Instead, he gives them what they really want. What is that? A life without him. That's what they want. And that's what they get as a result. Rejected worship. Thus, the actions of Jehovah flow out of it. These are, well, they're horrible to read. Again, I've just simply categorized them running through the balance of this chapter in verse 9. Well, he remembers what they're doing. Look at how he, the, the prophet frames this in verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves. Not just corrupted themselves. They deeply corrupted themselves. As in the days of Gibeah, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Now, the reference to Gibeah is, of course, important. If you turn back to Judges chapter 19, this is precisely what the prophet wants us to think about. Why? That we might be warned. Because it can happen to us. Judges chapter 19. I'm not going to actually read much of this, but I just want you to see with your own eyes it's really chapter 19 through 21 of which this mention of Gibeah comes. But there's a crime that is committed, a horrible crime that leads to war. Uh, what is that crime? Well, verse 22 of chapter 19, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the men seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. What do we have here? Rape. It's an atrocity. And God saw it. And it led to, dis, uh, to unrest in the land. It led to destruction. It led to war. 
because of this event. You have to read all the way through chapter 21 to get the full emphasis of this, but this is the reference Hosea is making when he mentions Gibeah. The corruption of the people of Hosea's day is no different than those people that acted wickedly in Judges 19. Now, there's no way you can read Judges 19 and say, well, you know, you just have to understand. No, you don't. It was an act of an abominable, egregious evil against others. And so he remembers. They're just like those people. They're no different. I must punish it. I am God. I am holy. And I must deal with this. They won't listen, so I must act. Second, though he knows this to be true, the prophet, as he communicates this to us, he, the prophet, God himself, is, is really brokenhearted over it. Look at the language of verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. You ever been really hungry? Boy, you just, any food at all would be a welcome sight. God is painting an image here of the people, how he viewed them when he found them. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, the sweetest of all of them. I saw your fathers, but, <laughs> always a but, they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Again, a reference to Numbers 25. The horrible events of Numbers 25 in the first generation of the people of Israel what happens in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9? Well, it's not good. Baal worship. Hence the name, Baal Peor. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. That was the God of the Old Testament. No, this is God, the God of the Bible. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. There's at least one righteous person in the camp. And went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. This, in Hosea's day, is going to be way worse. 
The reference here is given to us to shade for us in our mind the atrocity, the abomination, the wickedness, the evil of the people. God is broken hearted over it. A people that he loves and loved have prostrated themselves before idols and committed all sorts of abominations. He brings calamity, third. He remembers, he's brokenhearted, he brings calamity, verses 11 through 14. It's pictured in language that is just difficult to even contemplate. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. This is not figurative. He's going to restrain evil by keeping these people from procreating. And then he says, even if they do, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them. A prophet's woe. The strongest word that could be used is right here. Woe to them when I depart from them. He brings this horrible calamity. A failure to breed, uh, to have children. For fear that the evil in the land would just get worse. And worse. And those that are remaining, even as we read in Exodus 20 about the, 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 the judgment that will fall upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those that hate him. In what context is that command given? It's given in the, command, in the context of false worship. It's given in the same context as we have here in Hosea 9. And so he refuses their worship, verse 15. Verse 15, he again refuses their worship. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Don't let anybody tell you that God doesn't hate. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, Romans 9. Here he begins to hate them. At Gilgal, again, a reference, a point of reference. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. You might think, wow, it's pretty strong language. All their princes are but rebels. The reference to the house here is probably a reference to the land that we noted all the way back in verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. And in some sense then, therefore, the, the land of the Lord, it's his land that he promised to his people. It is the place, the land itself was a place of worship. It was, as, as it were, a, a temple in which God dwelled. And he says, you're not going to live here. You're not living in my temple with this kind of wickedness going on. You will be ejected. From my very presence. The house is probably a reference to the land. And fifth, he begins to hate them. The reference to Gilgal. Worship there, which was replaced with syncretism. A blending and mixing of the culture into the worship of God, which is itself an abomination of the highest order. We see this all the time in the church today. You can just get on YouTube tonight. You really want to be entertained. And you see this all the time. 
The church who blends the culture into their public worship of the triune God that they might, what? Attract people. What you win them with, you better keep, you'll keep them with. What you bring them through the door with is what you better keep doing, otherwise you will lose them. The people of Israel have blended the culture into the public worship of God and he, is the, the, he, 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 he abhors it. And he hates it. Hates them for it. And then finally, sixth, and certainly not least, but awfully hard to read, verse 17, my God will reject them. He rejects his people. But note here the good news. You might read that verse and go, where's the good news in that? It's there. Look at it again. My God will reject them. Who's writing? Hosea. What does he say about his God? It's he's mine. There's a remnant that is preserved even throughout this entire mess of the exile and the judgment of God and the pending destruction that is coming to the people. There is a remnant that are faithful to the God of heaven who will not be swayed or turned. The righteous often suffer with the wicked. This is why it's so important within the life of the church that we remember our brothers and sisters and that our actions, our sin, our behavior will in fact impact the life of this congregation. The righteous will suffer with the wicked. Hosea still is holding on to the true God of heaven while the people around him have rejected him. As such, then therefore, God has rejected them. But he hasn't rejected Hosea. And a host of others in his wake that still hold on to the God who saves them. All of this points us really to the hope of a Savior. Hosea is acting as a type of, a type of Christ. He is the prophet of the Most High God who says, My God dot, dot, dot. In Mark 15, we have another expression by someone as he hung on a cross and says to his Father in heaven, My God, why have you forsaken me? It is almost too difficult to even contemplate or even fathom but it's what happens. The firstborn son of God, Israel, is being rejected in the same way in which the Lord Jesus Christ will indeed be forsaken by his father. Why? Not because of his sin, not because of anything that he has done, but because everything that you have done and will do. Because of your idolatry. Because of your false worship because of your hypocrisy, because of the things that you do, all of it, all of those sins that are heaped upon you, all of them were placed upon the one who cries out, like Hosea, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why did he forsake him? For your sake. That he might reverse the very uh, uh, judgment that is here upon his people in this chapter. That he might reverse it in the person and work of his son. That he might rescue you from exile. From bondage. From misery and sin. Here it is. In a dark chapter, the hope of the gospel is still there. Even if it's just Hosea, the hope of the covenant faithfulness of the Lord is still given to the people. One commentator says it this way when he says, On the cross, God rejected his people in the person of his son. The true Israel was not these bunch of yahoos. The true Israel was Jesus Christ. We are part of him because he was forsaken by his father because of our sin. No longer then are we forsaken. We can never be forsaken. Why? Because he would have to forsake Jesus Christ all over again and that will never happen. Instead of being forsaken like the people of old, we are adopted. We are brought in to the very family of God and we are compelled by His Spirit to walk worthy, to walk according to all that God has said. And so in the face of ugliness, and it certainly is that in this chapter, there's a silver lining cast across the landscape of the coming Messiah who will be forsaken for the sin of the people he came to free from Egypt, from Assyria, from Babylon, from wherever. Here it is. Warnings require a response. One that seeks the face of God in repentance for sin, looking to he who was forsaken for my sin, will find relief. The answer to all those who so repent from the God of heaven is forgiveness that can only be found in the one who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is because I love the people that you came to rescue. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word once again, though dark and difficult as it is at times. We again are thankful that we see through the spectrum of these difficult days in the lives of your people of old, the very hope of Christ who cried out to you that we might not ever be forsaken. We pray, Father, that we would hear from him, we would respond to him this night. We would walk in genuine love to you. Grant us that help. Grant us that strength, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.